This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. I am your host, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is always, is Dan Gunther. Dan, how have you been doing today? Uh, really, really well, actually. Uh, I don't, you know, how, I don't know how many people out there follow Canadian politics or not, but uh, the province I live in, Alberta, just had their big provincial election yesterday and i helped out with that so i'm operating on not a lot of sleep but (laughs) so um are you going to be running for office someday (laughs) or is this something that's just kind of a passion of yours to help out with uh well i'm i'm a social studies major so i i love politics and all that kind of stuff and uh i don't know the star trek party i think we could make a run of that yeah, there you go. You could run against the Star Wars party oh, God, and you yes. could have arguments, you know, <laughs> about who would win in a firefight, the Millennium Falcon or the Enterprise. And and it's the Enterprise, yeah, of course. It's, yeah, it's, this sounds like a um, a great idea. So I, I think I could get behind one of these parties. And then you'd have your third party, you know, your outsider party, you know, your BSG or your Ooh. Babylon 5 or something, yeah, you know, that's upstart like, third party. Let us into the party. Let us into the party. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, they're wow. not coming to the debate. This, yeah, this <laughs> just got way off track. But um, <laughs> I'm excited because, you know, recently we have had a run of saying, man, I wonder when this cover is going to be out. And then the next week, we get that cover. Absolutely. Well, it happened again, folks. <laughs> and uh, we're pretty excited because we have some covers to judge. And we've got Seekers 3 and 4 here, Dan. Holy mackerel. I These are awesome. Yeah. No words. I mean, they're gorgeous. I, 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 I don't know what to say. I mean... Uh, I think before we started recording, you said that uh, you thought the original Seekers covers were good, and they were, but man, these are just so much, so much more, and I love them. They're just gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, I really didn't think that Rob Caswell could could really one-up himself, Mm -hmm. but the man really has gone where no man has gone before, and that's just destroyed his original covers. Oh, yeah. You know, with... I mean, wouldn't it be great if you had all four on your wall, like, 
together. Oh yeah. I mean, why why are we not selling these? This these are just fantastic. So mm-hmm. no, they they need to be sold for sure, like that because oh I would gosh. be first in line. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I you know I'm surprised that in some way you know pocketbooks or or star trek.com isn't isn't uh doing that you know i mean it doesn't seem it's not that hard to print um a poster and you know Mm. sell it on star trek.com and i'm sure there's plenty of fans that would would buy these i mean they're beautiful and especially if you just maybe had seekers three or something like that and that was the only um font on the on the poster and just the, so you get more of the picture mm-hmm. without the font on there i mean i just i would eat that up oh, it's yeah. so yeah it's so beautiful so first one here is long shot by david mack that we get and um wow this is an incredible incredible scene mm-hmm. definitely uh one thing I, I do notice is the the sagittarius sure seems to do a lot of plummeting <laughs> but uh you know, like we get we get it landing or, you know, crash landing a few times in Vanguard and in the first couple Seekers books there. Uh, and it looks like something similar might be happening again. I don't know if they're just flying through the atmosphere or coming in for a landing again, but uh, this is just beautiful. Yeah, I'm wondering, I mean, just does somebody say to Terrell, uh, ex- Captain, we're uh, plummeting toward the planet again. And he's like, again? <laughs> Like, you know, this this happens a lot, mm-hmm. but th- yeah, this is fantastic. I mean the 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 look of these clouds. There's this lightning storm in in the sky. There seems to be some sort of settlement on the ground that this ship is streaking towards. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, this this is way beyond sufficiently exciting. This is blowing my mind, kind of exciting. <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah, this is, and the colors and the composition is just. Man, I I can't wait to crack open this book and see what situation the Sagittarius has found itself in this time because it looks incredible. The next book that we have is called All That's Left, and this is Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore's book here about the Endeavor, and oh my goodness, I don't want to say that it's my favorite Seekers cover, but I'm going to say it's my favorite Seekers cover. (laughs) I would definitely agree with you on that one. The, uh, The whole... You know, you've got the shiny TOS spacesuits. You've got the really kind of cool space nebula background going on and the gorgeous planet. I think more than any of the other covers, this one really reminds me of those old uh, James Blish novel covers. And, you know, that's sort of from that sort of era. Like this one just really evokes that retro feel. And I absolutely love it. What I really like is that these TOS spacesuits um their environmental suits really i mean they capture the imagination in the sense that they look just like they did on the tv show and and yet at the same time he's able to make them look just a tad more realistic Mm -hmm. like you know because it doesn't have that cardboardy look (laughs) that you have on the tv show you know this really really all fits together and the fact that you're having these guys standing on a ship you know you can see the endeavor in the background um, it almost looks like two guys are beaming in and the background two mm. on the ship are beaming out. Yeah, I mean, you can't tell which one. I mean, this is just super exciting. I mean, mind-blowingly awesome, exciting. This is a fantastic cover. And it's been so long, I feel like, since we've had a cover where there's this much happening on the cover. Mm, definitely. Yeah, usually it's just kind of, you know, 
one or two or three spaceships kind of arrayed in some kind of situation, maybe a planet in the background. But yeah, this one, there's there's so much going on. There's actually people on the cover, which we haven't gotten in, in quite a while, really. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have enough good things to say about this. It's absolutely beautiful. I feel like the last cover where there was this much going on was The Missing, where there were all of those ships streaming mm. towards the new Deep Space Nine, yeah. you know? And in that cover just had a lot going on. Yeah, you know? that's true. Um, but yeah, you're right. We really... And, if we get people on a cover, it's usually like a floating headshot. Right. And so I I just really like this. And, and in fact, I would say that I would love Pocket to start doing more of this um, so that when we're doing our covers, we're getting more of the covers that you get um, with the cross-cult books there in Germany. Right. Where you're creating artwork that is, you know, these new characters um, from the Titan books or New Frontier. You know, you see those great renditions of those characters, uh, like Mares or something like that. That's how we all think of them because they're the ones who are actually giving us those renditions. I really wish Pocket would get an artist to help them create some of those things so we could add different scenes to our books than just... Hey, look, it's the Enterprise E again, you know, which I'm sure probably sells books in some ways, mm-hmm. but it's not really all that exciting anymore just to see the Enterprise E on the book with a nebula in the background. Right. Yeah. No, I'm thinking, yeah, for example, the the Crimson Shadow, which was, I think, my favorite novel to come out that year. And the cover was just, you know, really kind of there. It was lackluster and I didn't really like it. And I'm I'm really glad I didn't judge the book solely by that cover because that book was incredible and it deserves a cover like this. You had, in that one, you had the Enterprise E on it and a crimson sheet behind it, basically. <laughs> it was a nebula. But yeah, it was very frustrating that that was one of the best books of that year and just one of the best books on, I read that year because it was on my list of 10 best books for that year. Mm-hmm. And that the cover had so little to really do with what was happening. I mean, you know, where's Cardassia in that picture? Mm-hmm. You know, where? Why do? Why don't we have that there? Um, I don't know. It just. I'm with you. These covers do so much for the books, and I, I think maybe this maybe this signals that pocket is maybe willing to, to, to try some more things because I, I think this has been really successful for them I've I've not heard a bad word really about these seekers books people seem to be loving them um, and I think we're also loving the artwork you know I know that anybody who has gone to any of the conventions where they've had some of the posters that they give away from these um, I have one uh, that Dayton sent me and it's beautiful oh, man <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's on my wall here, right above my computer. I'm looking at it right now. And yeah, this artwork, it, it deserves to be available to us um, because it's it's so good. It's that good. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no better statement for art than to say, yep, I want that on my wall mm-hmm. all the time because yeah. I want to be able to look at it. And that's what we get with these covers. And thank God for, for these guys really believing and, Rob Caswell and and what he was doing, they saw it, they loved it, and thought, what if we put stories with these great pictures? (laughs) What a great idea. 
definitely. I yeah, I'm so glad that that happened and that project got off the ground and and now we're getting these novels uh, three and four now. I mean, that's that's great. I I want this series to continue, and it, also to continue getting this amazing artwork that we've been getting. It's it's really. It's a gift in the uh, in the Treklet universe for sure. Oh, oh, no kidding! It's it is incredible. Um, well, I do want to mention to everyone, um, and I'll be um, linking you to the article, so go check it out. But um, where we got these covers from was this great article on StarTrek.com about what goes into a Star Trek novel cover art, and it is by Rob Caswell. And he explains kind of his process as well as getting to see these beautiful pieces of art. So if you haven't seen them and if you'd like to kind of know a little bit more about what goes into creating these, it's a great article to read. And there's a link there for his Deviant Art page where he has a bunch more of his Seeker's ideas there. And if you haven't perused that, Guys, you were in for a treat. So I'll put that in the show notes, and I hope you'll go head over there and uh, take a look at that. Because honestly, if you're loving the Seeker's art here, you got to see some of the other things he's done. It's fantastic. Well, Dan, we're going to do something that is exciting today. We're going to start a brand new ebook mini series that um, actually began in 2006, and it was to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Star Trek. And actually, our friend Keith the Candido was the person that edited this series, and it's called Mere Anarchy, chronicling the aftermath of the disaster on the planet Mystico as it affected both the natives and Kirk and his crew over the entire course of the TOS era. So we're talking from right before he gets the Enterprise and where no man has gone before all the way to the movie era. And there's also a paperback omnibus of this series that was released in March 2009. Before we start, quick question, because I was reading this today and I was like, huh, I've read this before. I totally forgot that I've read this series before, and it has no bearing on whether it was good or not. It was just one of those things where it's like, sometimes I forget which Star Trek books I've read because I've read so many. Have you read this one before, Dan? I have not read this one before. Um, I remember when it came out in the paperback omnibus, and I saw it in my local bookstore, and I I remember thinking about picking it up, and then I never did. Uh, so yeah, I've never read this one before. Uh, this reading, just this first story is my first exposure to this at all. And I've not read any of the other stories yet. So, well, I'm, I'm really excited to, to be getting into this. And, um, so you were, uh, put some things on the outline here as, and I kind of did too. So we kind of have an amalgamation of some of our thoughts, but you were just talking, um, about the setting of this and, and how it really has that feeling of the, you know, where, where no man has gone before era, which is something that, especially with the Kirk enterprise, um, we don't get that very much because, you know, we kind of jump right out of that and we never visit that again. And so what did you kind of think about the fact that, you know, this, at this point, Mitchell hasn't gone crazy and turned into some weird godlike thing and tried to kill everyone. And, um, of course, we have Dr. Piper as well and, and instead of Dr. McCoy here. And 
So, and then, of course, Sulu is, you know, an astrophysics instead of being the helmsman. And so, yeah, I mean, um, this is this is something that doesn't get done a lot in books because I don't think the time period's supposed to be that long. Mm-hmm. But what did you end up thinking about having a story take place before where no man's gone before? Well, I thought personally that it was really cool uh, seeing the different crew in these in these different roles that we've not seen them in much before. Uh, and especially, I thought, kind of exploring that relationship between Kirk and Mitchell and kind of seeing their friendship as it is when he's not a megalomaniacal godlike thing uh was really really cool now i know there's a a trilogy of books and i've not read them uh my brother's keeper that kind of explores that a little deeper but i've not read those so i've never really seen that relationship explored before so i thought that was really great you know to get that kind of everyday feel between the two of them rather than the extraordinary circumstances we get in where no man has gone before uh also, Sulu, I thought, as an astrophysicist, it was cool to see him in that role, but also really cool to see him kind of take the helm and uh, Kirk kind of realizing, oh, hey, this guy's got some skills in that area, too. Good to see, you know, <laughs> it's kind of neat. It was really nice because, you know, the feeling of this story, it just feel everything feels newer and, and, and the Kirk feels more raw, you know, um, even more so than in a, many of the TOS books that we've seen before. And I think that was a really interesting thing to see. You know, this is, he's been out in space, it feels like maybe for a few months. And they're, it, it almost feels like they're, you know, close to Earth. They're not that far away. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to be traveling back to Earth in Space Dock, where Dr. Piper is going to, you know, be disembarking from the Enterprise and retiring. And we're going to be getting, um, of course, Dr. McCoy. So that's about a few months away. So these are really just the, this is, this could literally be the first mission for Kirk and, Mm. uh, the, you know, as captain, the enterprise, even though you get the feeling that they've, he's been on there for a few months, maybe. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to kind of see that, that character specifically Kirk, with the rawness. Um, I, we didn't get enough shouty Spock, though. <laughs> I did notice there was one part where I think they mentioned that Spock raised his voice to be heard over the the whine of the engines or something like that. And I thought that was kind of a nice little bit of a nod to that, you know, shouty Spock that we got full power, you know, or whatever he yells. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Coming out of warp now, Captain! <laughs> Spock, I'm yeah. right here. You don't have to shout. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, I do. I, I like this setting. Um, it is something to where, you know, I know we're we're setting up this storyline, but I kind of wanted this to be just a little bit longer so we could explore this world just a little bit more mm-hmm. because there aren't actually even a lot of scenes between Gary Mitchell and kirk right which i thought was interesting yeah Um, we kind of just get a hint just little kind of bits about their time at the academy and him want kirk wanting him to be his first officer kind of thing but yeah we don't get a lot of exploration of it well and it was 
really cool to find out, you know, that Kirk did want him as first officer and he was overruled by an admiral mm-hmm. who said, no, it needs to be Spock. And, and actually Mitchell had agreed with that admiral, even though Kirk didn't. So I thought that would have been kind of maybe an interesting thing for them to, you know, maybe have this set closer to when Kirk and, and Mitchell had already been having that discussion and so we could have maybe seen that discussion in the book as if it was, you know, something that was still going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that would have been a cool thing. But yeah, it was, this is a neat period to be in. It's not a long period. And so we don't get tons of stories in this. Yeah. But I like that you get that feeling that this is one of the first things that Kirk goes through as a captain. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I like that. So. Yeah, and there's all kinds of nice, just little touchstones that that Ward and Dilmore put in there. Like I, I noticed a couple mentions of lateral power, and that kind of thing, which is you know a phrase they used in that episode when they were escaping the the barrier at the edge of the galaxy and stuff, and not one we hear later on. So it just kind of reminds you of where they are in Star Trek history and that kind of thing. It was it was really nice, very very nice attention to detail by the authors. It just makes me wonder how many times that they watched The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone before to kind of get that framework, mm-hmm. you know, that really early Star Trek so that there are some of those little touch notes in there to say, "Hey, yeah, we realize that we're not just in your normal TOS episode here." Yeah. No, it's it's clear the effort's been put in, and it's really appreciated for sure. So the other thing um, I kind of wanted to talk about was, well, the the dilemma that this planet Mystico is uh, is facing. I loved how the authors were really able to kind of create this danger to the planet and the experience, and it feels very very real, both like the stakes for our characters that we're familiar with, but also for the people of the planet below. I found myself like really identifying with them and it felt very, very real. What did you feel about that whole situation? I think they do a good job in a really short time frame um, mm. to create this this world that, you know, they have created warp drive, but it's it's only uh, you know, certain countries on this planet that kind of are a part of that and they're not unified. And so the Federation has been made aware of their presence. They've sent uh, kind of a, a research team there that is all in, you know, makeup and everything to make them look like the indigenous population to kind of feel out where they might be. When it comes to, you know, their science and and how close they might be to maybe becoming part of the Federation, um, but undercover, you know, like who watches the Watchers or Mm. Star Trek Insurrection kind of thing. They're undercover. I thought that was really interesting. And so seeing how those um, crew members react to uh, the situation, how close they've come to these Mystico people and um, just the the general population, you know, it kind of felt somewhat close to something akin to we might have on Earth, you know, uh, you know, maybe in like 40, 50 years, maybe or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it felt like so it didn't feel too off. Yeah, it felt like a very realistic kind of depiction of, you know, a society that would be reaching this stage of development. And uh, I really liked that it was 
you know, a country on this planet that they're dealing with rather than the planet as a whole. That's not something we see a lot of in Star Trek. And I thought that was kind of a really interesting way to approach this story. Well, and that creates the whole dilemma of the story because Starfleet with the Prime Directive, they how do we deal with this planet, you know, um, and that limits our options because we are, uh, you know, we need to uphold our prime directive. We need to abide by that rule. And so how we help this planet is with one hand tied behind our back almost because we can't do everything that we could do if we could make the people aware that we're here. Right. So I think that was really an interesting thing. And, you know, um, of course I, I also picked up on this interesting tidbit, you know, every few weeks or every couple months, uh, my wife and I, we travel down to Portland here from Washington to see her parents. And we actually passed by a Jehovah's witnesses compound, which is, it's one of their places that they have set up and you'll see them around the country for if the end of the world comes Hmm. (laughs) and so i felt very interesting to read this story and and kind of see that um this religious sect here is very much like that that they have had these compounds built into the mountains and that's where some of the the survivors of this planet are going to come from and you can already tell that this is probably going to create some interesting divisions with different places and peoples as this story progresses later on. Mm-hmm. I really liked the uh, the government official that we kind of follow uh, through the course of the story when she hears, you know, who has survived and or who's who's talking kind of thing. And she kind of pauses for a little bit. And the guy says, oh, is there something wrong? And she's like, well, hmm, it seems that these... the that these are these religious guys. Is that a problem? Well, no, but moving on. And it's just like, okay, so this is, this is a story element that's going to come into play later. Okay. Good to know kind of thing. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, but I mean, it, it was interesting because it, like lots of Star Trek, we are taking bits and pieces from our world and kind of sprinkling them into what we have around us Mm -hmm. and, and, putting that into the story and see how that'll play out. And so it was just interesting to me because like, uh, it's a, I, I passed this a lot. So, mm. and I, you know, I've actually seen, um, you know, these places, there's actually one in Texas as well. That's, um, on the way to where we would go to like, you know, hike in New Mexico or Colorado. We'd end up passing it all the time too. So mm, that's really yeah, fascinating. Um, <laughs> It, yeah, it is very, very interesting. You know, they're set up to uh, be able to support people, um, you know, uh, farming-wise and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it was really interesting to see that in this story. So, mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that was very interesting is this does feel like this is the first time that Kirk is truly feeling this burden of command mm-hmm. and that... Uh, the the responsibility that comes with it and the weight that comes with it when something doesn't quite go your way as a captain. Mm. Um, And I thought that that was a really interesting thing here to see, um, especially with, uh, in light of the conversation that he and Piper have as well of 
basically Piper saying, you need to let this go because it just happens. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. Mm-hmm. And you, you need to be able to, to let that go and not beat yourself up over something that you only have so much control over. Yeah. And I mean, this really becomes a hallmark of the Kirk character over the course of the, uh, of, you know, the series and the movies. This is really something that Jim Kirk is all about is this burden of command, this, you know, heaviness that he feels when, you know, he's responsible for the actions of every member of his crew and the entire ship and, you know, if something happens on his watch, he really, really takes it to heart. Like, you know, we joke in Star Trek about red shirts dying and that kind of thing, but we see Kirk's reaction when that happens and it's very personal and he takes everything that happens under his command very personally. Like, you know, it's his fault. And there was an interesting line where he says, his internal monologue is something along the lines of, you know, if we'd succeeded, it would be due to the uh, resourcefulness of my crew and the hard work of Spock and Sulu and Scotty and all these people. But if we fail, that's me. It's on me 100%. And I thought that was just a really kind of interesting insight into how he thinks and not entirely something that I think a rational person would agree with wholeheartedly, but it's very much what we get with Kirk over the years. And it's, it's, you know, really clear to see that the authors really have a good uh, take on his character and really know what makes Kirk tick. Well, what was really interesting too about it was if they were to follow the letter of the law of the prime directive, they wouldn't help this planet at all. Mm -hmm. The planet would be toast. I mean, yeah. literally toast. <laughs> um, yeah. So you might as well just spread some jam on it and be done because this 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 planet wouldn't be here. So right. the fact that they do anything to help this planet and they keep it from being completely annihilated and give it some kind of chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was interesting. I didn't necessarily understand Kirk's response, honestly, because... I mean, and maybe this is something that will happen later on, but I feel like the Kirk later on would be looking at what they were able to accomplish and be able to see that if they hadn't been there at all, everybody would have died. Mm. And so maybe that's what they're going to try and do throughout this series is, and that's one of the cool things about it is because it's going to last the entire TOS run we're going to kind of see these characters move and change and, and grow beyond where they are now. And that's a pretty interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it's, yeah, maybe his youth and inexperience and kind of, you know, becoming a captain and, and getting command of the Enterprise and feeling like, oh, we can do anything. We can, you know, I I can I can be the hero and save everyone. I can be your hero, <laughs> baby. <laughs> Oh, you got to sing it like Shatner, though. <laughs> I I don't even how oh, I don't know how yeah, you would do that. No, that would yeah. be that would be pretty tough. <laughs> Actually, he would just talk it because you know, like William Shatner <laughs> exactly, does his albums. Yeah, the spoken so, word uh, album. I can be your hero, baby. I can I can kiss away your pain. Exactly, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but yeah, no, I wonder if 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 that's kind of coming into play, like the idea that you know, kind of he can do anything or 
and when, and when that fails, maybe he just takes it so hard because he's second guessing himself. There must have been something that he could have done to make this plan succeed. And when it doesn't succeed fully, it's, you know, he takes it so personally. It's, uh, that would be really hard to live with, I'd imagine. <laughs> As we move forward in the series, uh, you know, we, we see him take things, you know, hard um, and, and personally. But I think we also do see him grow, and that's one of the cool things about this series, again, is we're going to see, you know, we're going to see that play out, the, this idea that um, the, the characters uh, metamorphize into something different, you know. Um, and mm. so they start here, and, and it's just the the larva we're dealing with. Uh, and by the very end of this series, we're going to see the butterflies they become. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, um, that is really interesting because, you know, this is one of Kirk's first missions that we kind of see as being in command, fully in command, you know, as the captain of, of, of at least the Enterprise, mm-hmm. a ship of this stature, you know, the, the flagship of the fleet. Um, and, uh, it is interesting to watch this guy, um, handle these these things that are going to be unfortunately second nature later on you know he's going to deal with them a lot more so it's just going to get rougher from here buddy Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean you're going to lose your ship and your best friend and yeah yeah so it's i mean (laughs) it's it it I think what is is nice again here is is the fact that we are at the very very beginning of Star Trek and um watching the progression of these characters is really cool and like all good Star Trek stories this one touches on the prime directive and I I just this isn't I don't think of too long of a discussion but I wondered what you thought of how the Federation deals with the prime directive here because they seem to be breaking the rules, at least that we know them, that they would even be talking to this planet in the first place that isn't unified. And yes, they have warp drive, but it's not shared with everyone. I, it was very interesting that they were, you know, revealing themselves whatsoever to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of an interesting situation that they've set up here. Uh, with this planet and where it is exactly in its cultural and technological development. Uh, I I have a really hard time exactly discussing the Prime Directive in situations like this because I completely disagree with the idea that if like a civilization is doomed to be destroyed, that the Prime Directive says, oh, well, we should just let that happen. Uh you know, I know there's a fine line between that and playing God and, and all that kind of thing, but I I don't know. I feel like if you have the resources and you can save millions or billions of lives, you should do it. <laughs> I don't know. I have a really so I mean I completely agree. I think I think the Starfleet should be doing everything they can to help this planet. And uh yeah, as far as talking to the population, I don't know. That's a little dicier. I think what they do, letting the government decide what gets revealed and what doesn't get revealed is probably best. But as far as the actual taking the actions to save 
the people of the planet, or at least as many of them as they're able to, I think if it's feasible, they should do it. <laughs> but that's just me. It's an interesting question, too, because if they had just revealed themselves to the planet, I feel like it seems like there was more they were going to be able to do hmm. than just deploy these, you know... Um, deflector shield robots in space that uh, creating this massive deflector shield that are hopefully going to um, divert this this pulsar's energy away x-ray energy away from the the planet and um, so they're they're kind of dancing the line here and having it both ways and um, but it was interesting it's like you know if you're really going to try and save the planet just go all out you know Mm -hmm. like do what you have to do to save the planet, and it's probably gonna be fine. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know how I feel about it because, you know, um, because I'm, I'm not a survival of the fittest person in the first place. Yeah, the Prime Directive doesn't really make sense to me at all. Mm-hmm. At least in but that context. You th- yeah, yeah, but when you think of it, when it comes from that very scientific humanistic standpoint that star trek comes from the prime directive it it would be the prime directive is we're not out here to pretend we're some sort of gods so mm-hmm. if if nature is deciding that this planet is doomed then who are we to say it's not um we we shouldn't have, you know be involved in changing the evolution of a species um whereas yeah I, i'm kind of with you like we can help people and protect people we should do that so mm-hmm. but i come at it from a completely different side yeah. and so um yeah it's it's a that's a tough thing you know and and i think that's where why maybe one of the reasons they created it is just because it creates great drama mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, who knows and i mean it certainly does in in some some instances for sure so yeah that that makes sense um i also think like star trek is about different things and i think part of what star trek is about is technology and using it to uh, i don't want to say conquer nature but you know overcome limitations kind of thing so it's kind of funny because those two aspects of star trek come into conflict a little bit the idea that uh you know you can't interfere and you can't do anything to change things but technology makes things better and we can overcome them you know, it's kind of interesting that Star Trek just, you know, kind of has those things battling each other. And, and it would be nice if, I don't know, I'm I'm a, I'm a do-gooder. So, <laughs> you know, as far as influencing a culture or something like that, or, or introducing technology to a people that, you know, don't have the maturity to deal with it. Yeah, that's one thing. Uh stopping an asteroid or a pulsar that's going to wipe out a civilization before it has a chance to to grow that that's another thing in my mind so yeah no and i i'm completely in agreement with you so um i, I think it just makes uh it's one of the things that makes for a great question in this storyline so mm-hmm. one of the neat things about this we talked about is that this series is different than other ebooks in that it is really playing the long game. So it is setting up this story, and there kind of is an end point for this story, but it really is meant to be continued on into the other stories. And I really like that because 
it does create that feeling of we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, and so we're going to tell this big, massive story that spans the entire TOS time frame and something that's going to touch all of these characters' lives. And I think that's really interesting, and much in the same way that, that David R. George III did his Crucible series, where for him it was the city on the end of forever that everything was kind of revolving around for for the three main characters so i really like this i think it's really really smart um to to do this type of series where yeah you read this first book but it's you know the story isn't finished and it's okay that it feels a little unfinished because it should because you should want to just go ahead and pick up that you know very next book and i think that's completely fine and it makes for I think a nice celebration of what they were trying to do back in 2006. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I really like, I think I mentioned a couple of things where you can tell they're leaving little plot threads dangling that they're going to pick up later. I really like that idea of, of having this continuing ongoing story and how it affects the lives of the characters over the entire TOS era. Uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty interesting. Like, you know, this came out to celebrate the 40th anniversary. We're going to be reading it kind of heading into TOS's 50th anniversary. It's kind of neat to celebrate the history of Star Trek with with stories like this. And, um, you know, next year we're going to be getting, of course, some 50th anniversary stories. The There's another TOS trilogy coming out of novels. Uh and I'm sure there's probably other things that we don't know about yet that are coming. So it's kind of neat when, you know, there's a little bit of a celebration themed thing like this. And this one, especially going through the entire history, it's going to be a fun ride. And and I'm really interested to see where the characters go and and how this situation affects them over the years. Well, it really just reminds me of my favorite Star Trek book song, which is plot threads you precious little plot threads how are you plot threads yeah you can just see data singing that oh yeah absolutely yeah that's what he does sitting there you know he's talking to moriarty and he's reading a novel jeff lang's books you know so perfect oh Jordy's like, I thought you weren't going to sing that anymore, Data. You, you've got to stop. Yeah, Jordy's just face palming at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, I, I was going to ask you, like, should we rate this? But I feel like we should probably just hold off and until we finish the entire series because it, it, it doesn't really feel fair to judge this book by itself mm-hmm. because it, it's not a complete story. And I again, I think that's okay. And so I think we'll kind of hold off on, for our ratings until we get to the very end of this story. And then we can kind of judge it as a whole because each of these stories is going to be building on the other. And I just felt like that was fair. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that said, I will say that I really enjoyed this story. And uh, it's really made me interested to see where the rest of the story goes. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoy... Kevin Dilmore and Dayton Ward's collaborations, generally speaking, and this was this was a really good one. So, uh, yeah, I look forward to kind of seeing it as a piece of the greater whole as we move forward, and uh, you know, giving our ratings at that point. 
Well, I'm with you. I think that everybody should be on this journey with us. It's a lot of fun. Like we said, you know, you can get this in ebook format or you can get the big ominous paperback out there, probably still somewhere used. So um, you may even be able to find it on Amazon at this point as well. But I think it's definitely a journey worth taking. It's a great six part story, and I look forward to be able to jump into the next part soon. Well, Matthew, uh, I. Like like you said, I'm really looking forward to continuing this journey and and seeing where this goes from here. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I had a lot of fun talking about this first part, uh, Kirk's indecision and uh, all of the plot threads that are dangling, waiting to be picked up in the next volume. So this has been a lot of fun. It really was. I, I really enjoyed it as well. And, and hopefully, too, um, we'll be able to get a hold of that CD, Data's Star Trek book songs, <laughs> and we'll be able to play more as we go along. But Data's Star Trek book songs is not the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. <laughs> set this movie at the end of the five-year mission. Skip ahead five years, you know, kind of like Dark Knight or whatever, and then Mm -hmm. say, okay, we've had all these adventures, blah, 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 and now we're at the end. We're about to go home, you know, and it's been, you know, a fun time was had by all. Earl Grey. Again, you know, because it's January, my ship was shot beyond the bounds of normal interstellar travel <laughs> to the center of the galaxy, but we were back in time for tea. The orb. They're they're not even right. thinking about it at this point. Okay, how yeah, do we well, exactly. start the resistance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we do all this? Yeah. Because they yeah. have become comfortable with where they are and thinking yeah. that they're doing all they can, and yet right. we know as the audience that they're not. To the journey. I want you to say right now in front of our our friends, okay, and in front of me and the Lord Almighty, what is your favorite season? Okay, this isn't the favorite season. I want you to tell me what your favorite season is. <laughs> Daniel, Daniel and Darren, promise we won't ever be like this. The Ready Room. So what's the deal? You know, does Tom have a dad we don't know about? Apparently. Because who was this guy that he was remembering as his dad? Was that Nick Locarno's dad? (laughs) That was Nick Locarno's dad, yes. Commentary, Trek stars. But I mean, here's the question, John. If if you're living Fight Club, then, you know, we have to ask, if you could fight anyone, who would you fight? William Shatner. All right. Literary Treks. The main storyline here is the battle for the Vulcan soul. They're one of the most logical races, and yet they have an intensely spiritual aspect to them. Axanar, the official podcast. You were there. Mm. How long did we wait for them to try and reach that phone? Oh, minute? man, it was, it, was, it was at least as long as the Enterprise penetrating V'ger's <laughs> outer shield to getting into the actual machine core. The 602 Club. So, as far as the realism question is concerned... Um, when, whether or not it's the right thing to do, it's the Marvel way to do it. I mean, I think that's the that's the defining difference between Marvel and DC. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows, find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. Guys, we're, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you can help us out in a big way if you love what we do and just want to be able to share that and have more people find it. Hit that subscribe button in iTunes. Also, give us a star rating and review. 
If you're not an iTunes or you're not an Apple user, you can get our shows everywhere. Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. You can stream and download the MP3 file, and of course you can grab the RSS link as well from the website. Another great way to help the network is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. Uh, We are a listener-supported network, and without you guys, it's kind of impossible for us to do this. As a volunteer basis only, uh, there's a lot of costs that go into doing this. And so if you'd like to know more, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. You'll find the goals that we have we're trying to reach as well as the perks that come with those. You got some great perks there. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You can contact us at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar of the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm. Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And we're on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group great place to have a Star Trek discussion, Star Trek books discussion. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And we also have a Goodreads group. We've got our bookshelves there that have our previously covered books. We've got our currently reading section so you know what's coming up. And we also have some great conversations going on over there about books and comics as well. I'd really like to thank some of our associate producers. We've got Will Wynn. He's on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn. And, of course, he's on the Babel Conference. He is the associate producer for The Orb and Earl Grey and is Trek FM's content coordinator. Also, a big thank you to Ken Tripp and his support in the network and being associate producer on Literary Treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not beating yourself up over a glass of Saurian brandy because you just couldn't save that planet... Where can we find oh, you? Oh man, the fifth one this week, Matthew. I'm I'm losing planets like you wouldn't believe. What the heck are you doing, Dan? <laughs> fifth planet this week. Uh, it's related to the Section 31 mission. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, oh, yeah, <laughs> you can find me online. Uh, my website is www.treklit.com, and on there I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com/slash treklitreviews, and I'm on Twitter at kertrats k e r t r a t s. Uh, and you can find me, of course, on the Babel Conference and on our Goodreads uh, discussion group talking about Star Trek books and whatever else strikes our fancy. <laughs> and Matthew, when you're not on the Bridge of the Enterprise trying to chat up Yeoman Smith, or is it Jones? I can't remember which. I can't ever remember. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Also do The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. And then I'm on the 602 Club. We pick a great new geeky topic each week and talk about that. So this latest episode was the Age of Ultron. We just saw that and we all talked about that. So that was a lot of fun. And then, of course, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.